The scripture reading today is from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. The reading can be found in the bulletin on page 7. Hear the word of the Lord. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me continue with verses 13 and 16 of Matthew chapter 2. Now after the Magi had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. And then in the second chapter of Luke, verses 1 through 3. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, in the stillness of this moment, we ask that you would meet with us and speak to us. For we know that we cannot live by bread alone, but only by every word that comes from your mouth. So take the words 
of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts and use them as channels of grace for your word to enter and remain and guide and guard our lives through Jesus Christ. Amen. During the season of Advent in our sermons, we're looking together at some of the groups of characters that appear in the story of Jesus' birth and the events before and uh, slightly after. Last week on the first Sunday of Advent, Dr. Fox focused on the prophets who are a part of the story and specifically focused on the prophet Isaiah, pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah in many different passages in Isaiah, but he focused on a passage which spoke about the Messiah's passion to bring people together who would be natural enemies. So Isaiah has this great vision, what we call the peaceable kingdom, and there are wolves in the vision and lambs in the vision, and we may like to think of ourselves as lambs and other people as wolves. Whoever the wolves or the lambs are, the Messiah longs to bring them together and this is like the Sermon on the Mount. The Prince of Peace longs for us to be peacemakers in his name, agents of his peace within the world. Next week, we focus on the wise men or the magi of whom we've just heard in Scripture. We'll be hearing that story again uh, next week, the ones who follow the star to our Lord Jesus. Today, though, I want us to focus on the kings who are a part of the story of the birth of Jesus, on Herod the Great of Judea, and the Roman emperor, whose name we just mentioned a moment or two ago, Caesar Augustus. But first of all, a quick word about kings and queens in general. Historically, of course, they've been a mixed blessing, and we know this in our own country from our own history, but the tyranny of our last king before the United States, King George III, whose rule and form of government we summarily overthrew, and replaced it with a different form of government and a different leader. And while we have done that, and while the kingship as such has been abolished, some of the questions relating to who is the top dog and how they rule and what they should be called, well, they don't quite go away so easily. So with regard to the title king, of course, we don't have a king, we have a, a president. But some of you know that there was a real discussion in the early days of uh, the new nation as to how the president should be called, what honorific titles and expressions should be given to the president. One was His Excellency, is that how you should address the president? The one I like best is His Highness, the protector of our liberties. That obviously, neither of these were, were chosen uh, for this, but the debate continued as to what's the honor given to the person who is at the top. And with regard to the powers of the person who is at the top, of course, that's an ongoing discussion. Constitution arises, it seems to give a certain amount of power to the president, to Congress, to the judiciary. You think that everything's taken care of, but actually no rules or laws can cover ever every eventuality. And so the debate as to the extent of presidential power, not kingship power, but presidential power, continues to the present day, and this is no small matter with the rise of autocratic leaders across the world, leaders who actually have far more power than pretty much any modern king or queen today, exceptions of course, but many of them don't have anything like the power that they used to in the past. These kinds of discussions about power for those who are in leadership, whatever their titles may be, 
are discussions which uh, are modern, they are part of our age, they go back a couple of hundred years to the foundation of our own nation, but of course they're much, much, much older than that. They've been alive for hundreds if not thousands of years and very much were topics of conversation at the time when our Lord Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. And that discussion related in particular to kings, whose title in a sense wasn't going to change, though one of them was called an emperor. Kings who influenced and impacted and were a part of the story of Jesus' birth. The most powerful leader in the Mediterranean world at the time, and perhaps in the whole of the world at that time, was the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. And the second person who enters the story was a pretty powerful person himself, but of a much smaller region, the region of Judea, Palestine, the area of Palestine, King Herod the Great. I want us to think just a little bit about these two characters, and if you have a bulletin, you'll find there's an insert which has some information about them in there. The Emperor Augustus uh, died in AD 14, so Jesus was in his teens and knew well about the rule of Augustus. And it was his decree, as I mentioned to the children, that caused Mary and Joseph to travel to Bethlehem from Nazareth, even when Mary was pregnant. Uh, he was the emperor when Rome transitioned from being a republic, first became an, an empire, and there is no question that he ruled the empire with an iron fist, authoritarian rule. And actually, through his rule, a great deal of good occurred throughout much of the ancient Mediterranean world. He established a peace, Pax Romana, Pax Augustana, which lasted for decades, if not for hundreds of years. And through that peace, the message of our Lord Jesus Christ was able to spread in the early days of the church far and wide. There is no question that peace was used by the early Christians for the propagation of the gospel and the message about our Lord Jesus. So some people thought that Augustus was really just the best leader who ever could be on the face of the earth, the best king, the best emperor that you could find, and some even worshipped him. Listen to these words from something called the Priene Calendar inscription. This was found in Turkey, and it dates from 9 BC, so just before Jesus is born. These words are found, and we know the date because of a character who is mentioned in them, Paulus Fabius Maximus, Proconsul of Asia, and Asia is Asia Minor, it's the region, uh, one of the regions in modern-day Turkey. And it goes like this, I'm proposing that we change the calendar to begin the new year on Augustus' birthday. It is hard to tell whether the birthday of the most divine Caesar is a matter of great joy or even of salvation. We could justly hold it to be equivalent to the beginning of all things. He has brought into full shape everything that has decayed and been corrupted. He has given a new face to the whole world, which blindly would have embraced its own destruction if Caesar had not been born for the common benefit of all, being sent to us and to our descendants as our Savior. He has put an end to war and has set all things in order. Indeed, the birthday of the Divine One has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. Therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. So this is a staggering statement of adulation and of worship. And it uses words that our gospel writers would pick up on when they were going to describe 
the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, Savior, salvation, good news, in the beginning, great joy. Incredible words used of Augustus. And Augustus was clearly revered by some. And yet others, as with any politician, others lamented the power that he had taken into his own hands, the democratic or slightly more democratic days of the, uh, of, of the republic were over and they wished that they were back again. And while he maintained peace within the empire, and many people were the beneficiaries of that. Well, if you lived on the periphery of the empire, you would be crushed if you threatened his power in any way, and the same would be true if you lived inside the empire, if you threatened his power in any way. All internal dissent, crushed if need be. Same is true of King Herod of Judea, who died in 4 BC, probably a year or two after our Lord Jesus was born from the Bible. What we know of Herod is this, that he was paranoid and he was brutal. He was willing to kill dozens of babies if even one of them was a threat to his regal power and to his throne. And outside the Bible, we actually get the same kind of picture of Herod. These two things are congruent. Paranoia, jealousy, and murder were part and parcel of his life. He murdered three of his sons, and Caesar Augustus is reputed to have said he'd rather be a pig than be a son of Herod. Murdered his wife, Mary Amney. Murdered her brother. Murdered her mother. Murdered her grandfather. And on and on, and there are others who were murdered as well. Any threat to power. But what we also know of Herod is that not everything was quite as bad as that. He was a tremendous architect, a tremendous builder. Built a remarkable uh, port at a place called Caesarea. He completely redid the temple, renovated the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And if you have ever seen or heard of the Wailing Wall, or now generally called the Western Wall, it's the work of Herod. Incredible work still standing today. He built fortresses, partly because he was paranoid, but incredible fortresses. Machaerus in modern-day Jordan, the Herodian, in a hill, inside a hill outside of Bethlehem. And perhaps most famous of all is a fortress by the name of Masada on a mesa down by the Dead Sea. So from a broad historical point of view, the record of both Augustus and Herod is really quite mixed. Within one and the same person, there is the good, there is the bad, and there is the really, really ugly. And the same thing is what we find if we go back in time beyond that time, staying in the biblical story to the time of Israel's ancient kings. We find that the good and the bad and the ugly are so often wrapped up in one and the same person. The kind of inconsistency that we see in Herod and Augustus. The Bible does not hide from us, even amongst those who are the more saintly leaders of God's ancient people. And this fact, this fact that the kings of Israel, even the godly ones, would not be as godly as people wanted them to be, comes to the forefront when the people of Israel want a king. So for about 400 years following the exodus, their freedom from slavery, they have charismatic leaders of one kind or another. But then the people look around them and say, everybody else has a king, we want a king as well. And they say this to their leader, Samuel, 
who talks to God about this, and Samuel brings a word from God to the people at that time. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we have Samuel's re response to the request for a king. This is what he says. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. Others, though, to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys He'll take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. Then he adds this. When that day comes, you're going to cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Sure enough, this is exactly what happens. As the stories of Israel's kings are related in the pages of our Old Testament scripture and the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, this is exactly what happens. In fact, even if you uh, read these books and you kind of get lost in the myriad of details and names and historical timelines and so forth that are part of them, one thing emerges very clearly and which is really very hard to miss, and that is that if the king is good, and when the king does good, things generally work out well. It's not a 100% guarantee, but generally that's the way it is. And when they are bad, when there's a loss of integrity or greed or cruelty in what they do, things for everybody else take a downturn as well. It really is a remarkable lesson in leadership that we find in the pages of our Old Testament scripture in the history of the rulers of God's ancient people. Sometimes they're pretty much all really bad. Occasionally they're more or less all good. But most of the time, the good, the bad, and the ugly are mixed up in one and the same person. And perhaps this is no more clearly seen than in the story of Israel's greatest king, King David, who in his early years led God's people with incredible bravery, with incredible wisdom, and with incredible faith and built up a remarkable, a remarkable uh, nation of people binding wolves and lambs together. But as time passes, power goes to his head, as it so easily does with us human beings. Power goes to his head. He commits adultery with a woman who is powerless and to cover things up, and often the cover-up is worse than the deed itself. He commits murder, and you put those things together, and you find that his family life begins to spiral down at this point. And this lack of integrity in his life, though he is forgiven, has an impact for years to come on family and on nation as well. Negative ramifications on the power and the impact of his leadership. And of course, this is what we see in others who are leaders, whether it's in the context of kings or queens or presidents or all kinds of other leaders. We see it in our political leaders. Think of the power of a Lincoln or a Roosevelt or a Thatcher or a Merkel or a Putin or Xi Jinping. We see it in leaders of technology and the power and the impact that they have on our lives, whether it's Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and 
years gone by, or Musk or Bezos or Zuckerberg to this day, whoever they are, we know we desperately need people of great vision combined with great wisdom. And when it is combined, they can unleash enormous amounts of human potential. And in some ways, they can fight our battles for us or lead us into battle with confidence if all goes well. Truth, of course, though, is that time and time again, we end up being disappointed. We impose upon our leaders a level of expectation that they don't match up to. The results of their endeavors are not uniformly good. The very thing that looks good turns out in the end to have a, a downside to what is going on there. And there may not be a sense of responsibility or accountability for both the good and for the bad. And there's a disappointment not only in the results but in the person themselves, falling short of our expectations and our hopes and our dreams. And the question for us as Christians is this, we who know the Bible, what do we do with this world that we see and this knowledge that we have that comes to us from the pages of Scripture? Do we just become angry and cynical like many people today? Do we give up on our expectations of higher standards, just throw our hands in the air and say, never going to be any better than this? Or is there something positive in the way that we can respond that helps us find an internal health, as it were, in the face of ongoing disappointment, no matter who and with what? Well, I want to suggest to you today something which I think is quite simple, yet I believe it to be really quite profound. And that is this, that in the face of living in a real world, and in a world in which there's much history which is of interest and which we should understand to understand our present day world, living in the real world, we always have to ask ourselves, where is our primary focus? And who is our primary focus on? And who can bear the level of perfection that we so desperately want to place on one person somewhere? This seems to be a human need to place a a huge level of perfection on someone. Is there anyone who can bear that level of perfection? To which, of course, the answer you know I want to give and that I believe is that there is such a person as this. But there is only one. And that one needs to be at the center of our lives, the one who is at the center of the story of Christmas, around whom the kings and the emperors only play bit parts. But in our world, we push them to the center to carry a load which no human being can carry. That one at the center, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ, who comes to us and to all people and who loves us, not as those who are perfect, but those with whom there is always the good and the bad and the ugly. And this is true. This will be always true of our leaders, for whom we should have high expectations. For perfection, hmm, this side of heaven, we are not going to get there. And this can be dangerous, this level of perfection that we impose upon our leaders if we're not careful, because it leads to a tendency to throw out the baby with the bathwater and to ignore whatever good there is in favor of whatever bad there is. Columnist and Christian Michael Gerson put it like this in a column about a month ago, November the 4th. 
about a revisionist history that has been written about Winston Churchill. And he says this quite simply. You can go back to the column. He says this is his opinion and mine as well. You simply cannot dismiss great leaders like Churchill. And he then goes on to speak of Jefferson for the egregious flaws within their character and within their lives. And our society is doing this more and more as if they were sinless, as if unless they are sinless, they are no good for anything, as if the good they do amounts to nothing. In fact, the paradox is always this, that good leaders who are human will have flaws and we will find them out at time, but especially with Churchill and Jefferson, they have provided for us through the winning or the leadership in war and through the Constitution, the very grounds by which we can criticize them, the foundation of a society which gives us the freedom to be critical of our leaders comes from those we criticize. Yes, criticize, but don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's to impose on people, humans, a level of perfection that they cannot sustain. And indeed, it is to ignore the story of Jesus' birth with Jesus the King and Herod the King and Caesar Augustus the King. Who is at the center of the story? Well, the surprising good news is it is not Augustus and it is not Herod. It is Jesus. And when we place him at the center, it does not mean these others lose accountability, but their ultimate judge is God made known in Jesus. And if we drop it down a notch, we can take together the good, the bad, and the ugly, knowing that in Jesus there is pure good, unadulterated good that will never, ever disappoint. We hunger and thirst for that, for the one in whom we will never be disappointed. If we place that burden on anyone else, we will be disappointed. This Christmas, this season, this Advent, make sure that your focus is on the one King, the King of Kings, who can bear the weight of what we hunger for. And then hold others accountable. Yes, we need to. Desperately, we need to. But it's human beings like us who need the one and only Savior, just as we do. Let us pray. Almighty God, we bow before you, and we give you thanks for the grace and mercy that you show to us. And we thank you that that perfection that we dream of and that one day will be seen in heaven can be found in our Lord Jesus now. Help us to place him at the center of our lives, even as he is at the center of the story that we celebrate now and in the days ahead. In his name we pray. Amen.